Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. RFM, you're going to have to mute yourself there to start us off, my friend. Thank you very much for mentioning that. How are you tonight, Bill Real? Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Look at this. Look at these threads I've got. That is great. I love your T-shirt. Did you get that at Thrive? Somebody gave me a free T-shirt at Thrive. They'd asked me about a month earlier which one I wanted, and I wanted to just be another lazy learner. It's like uh, my parents went to Thrive, and all I got was this stupid T-shirt. <laughs> so, my friend, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit about how the last week has been for you? <laughs> it's been absolutely crazy, but that T-shirt reminds me of a great 80s song. Just another lazy learner. That's it. That's it. Okay. I'm not going to go on from there. <laughs> but I've got a new T-shirt on. It's Doctor Strange. And I'm going to lean back a little bit because it's got super psychedelic colors. I'm also wearing a necklace. It's made mm. by my daughter. I visited her when I was down there in Utah for Thrive, and nice. she made it herself. So I've got it on tonight in honor of her. What a weekend, Bill. Yeah, just a, a quick note before you jump into a couple of things that you wanted to kind of share with what's been going on. Thrive was amazing, by the way, and, and I'll jump in maybe when you talk a little bit about that. But uh, we've got some help behind the scenes. We uh, Over the last week, uh, a listener who really enjoys the program uh, has agreed to help us behind the scenes. And so uh, they will be putting up some of our uh, screen sharing stuff and some of the other things to help us out so that uh, doing a great blessing to me to help me kind of build a focus more on this conversation. And uh, I'm really excited. This is going to be kind of a new little step for us. Yeah, I'm really excited too. And I'm going to try to remember not to mention her name. Okay, perfect. Um, so go ahead and tell us the uh, Tell us, is there anything you want to cover about the last, like, I'm just wondering, did you do anything interesting in the last week or so? Was there... Well, there was Thrive. There was also a debate on Saturday night. And I think that everybody's probably heard more than enough about this debate on Saturday night. But I did want to share with you a little anecdote of something that happened before everybody actually got inside the building. We were in there and because of security concerns by the three midnight Mormons, nobody else could be in there. They're lined up around the block. And they have to wait until they can all be frisked or something, or I don't know, have a full, you know, rectal examination before they can get in the building. Anyway, we're in there and there's people on the front row. You're there. Your wife's there. Randy's there. I won't say his last name. Anthony Miller's there. Lila Tuller's there. They're just Jim on the Bennett. front. Jim Bennett was there. He was there, but not at this time. This is before, right? Gotcha. This is the only reason I'm telling the story is because otherwise people would not know, Perfect. even if you were there or even if you watched the video. So, and by the way, the video is up now on uh, Mormonism Live, right? Or Mormon Discussions on our YouTube channel. It's on Mormon Discussion Incorporated's YouTube channel, yeah. Yeah, it went up there this morning. It was put up at Midnight Mormons. They put it up. They've got about 8,000 views on it by now. And over at Sean McCraney's channel, Heart of the Matter, he put it up as well. That's got around, I think, 15 or 16,000 
views by now. So there was a lot of interest in this. So I will just tell the story once again. Now, we're over there on stage left, audience right. That's where the front row is, where we have some people seated. And I'm sort of standing there talking with you. And then in come the Midnight Mormons. And they come in the other side. And Bill, you sort of whispered to me and nodded over at him and said, look, they've got bulletproof vests on. Bulletproof and I looked, vest. And I looked over and sure enough, and I couldn't let it go, of course, me being me. So I call over to the three of them and I say, hey, guys, I'm glad you're wearing bulletproof vests tonight because I've got snipers located there and there. <laughs> and I thought that was funny. They didn't think it was that funny. So Cardin decides to engage and he calls over to me and he says, hey, Radio Free Mormon, have you ever had a loaded gun pointed at you? And I said, no. And he said, well, I have twice. And I stopped yeah. for a second and I said, well, Cardin, you got to stop pissing people off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and about yeah. that point, he decided to disengage. He had something else he had to do. So anyway, I just want to let everybody know that because I thought it was uh, humorous. It rounds out the evening. That's what was going on. That was the pre-debate debate. Those, um, were, those were really small vests. Those well, they were. Those bulletproof vests were maybe barely covering the uh, crucial internal organs. Yeah, I think they got them at Toys R Us. <laughs> and the deal with a bulletproof vest is you you don't wear them on the outside because if you wear them on the outside, then the snipers know where not to shoot you. Yeah. It's but, then everybody can't, but then everybody can't see that you have bulletproof vest on, which is the whole charade anyway, right? It was the whole idea. They were props <laughs> and nothing more. And I want to get credit. Okay, for something I did not say when I was sitting up there on the stage, some people think, and maybe with good reason, that every thought I have comes out my mouth. Okay, sometimes I actually think things that I don't say. This is why I need credit for it. And I thought, but did not say while I was sitting up there on the stage with them, I thought about saying, you know, uh, I see you have bulletproof vests on. Oh, there we are. Uh, I see you have bulletproof vests on tonight. I hope you're not. I said, I hope you're not worried about me. Because from where I'm sitting, I've got a clean headshot on all three of you. <laughs> now, I did not say that. Okay, yeah. so I want credit for some restraint. But enough about the debate. Did you want to say anything more about the debate? Because I know you were president. I was going to go to Thrive. I took, I had to, I, you went uh, to Thrive the, and they had the karaoke thing going on. I went back to the uh, hotel and took three showers. <laughs> yeah, so, um you were the alone in the shower? Me, the debate for me was, I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, but then the next day at Thrive itself, oh, man, what a gorgeous thing it was. Uh, you, I know you want to mention this too, but there were like so many picture people. of Cardin, by the way. Is he doing the Fonz there? Is that like Henry Winkler? I think it is. That's, hey. probably, that's probably Henry Winkler. Yeah. Um, the actual Thrive on Sunday started at 10 a.m. and ended, I think, about 6.45 p.m., and it was just so well done. I, I really have to say kudos to uh, the Open Stories Foundation and their staff. Uh, it really was top-notch, and there were the crowd was huge. The production value was incredible. There were people behind the stage helping you and me to know exactly when to walk up on stage. When you're up at the stage giving your talk, uh, there's a giant screen right in front of you that only you can see that tells you exactly how much time you've got left. Um, oh, I didn't see that screen. Oh, yeah. Well, you did perfect. You nailed it right at 15 minutes. <laughs> I didn't know there was a screen with a timer on it. Yeah, there was. And you nailed it, though. And uh, uh, all the people there who are fans of the show, um, followers of you or I, 
it was a lot of fun to get a chance to interact with people and to hear their stories and to to kind of get a feeling for how much we mean to those folks. I want everybody to know how much I really appreciated being able to meet so many of you. I gave my, by the way, did you catch the, that incredible first talk at Thrive? That the guy first, just knocked it out of the park. Do you know who I that was? was? A little, yeah, I was a little worried. You let it off and I was a little worried that you might jump into my time. And yeah. you did really good. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like you're the high councilman waiting for the first speaker to finish so you can get up in sacrament meeting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm trying to be very sensitive to that because I, I don't want to cut into anybody's time. But after my talk, I basically went out to the lobby to get something. I never got back into that huge room where they were having the Thrive uh, presentations because people were just wanting to talk to me. And with the exception of lunch, I was out there in the lobby on my feet until 6 o'clock p.m. I never made it back in to the room. But I was so excited to talk to all the listeners who wanted to talk to me. And it was a great experience. I wanted to thank everybody for uh, sharing your time with me and for all those people who uh, gave you, gave me uh, gifts, expressions of support and thanks. And it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Just a quick note, back to the debate for two seconds. They had their magic garments on, right? Look, Bill, we need to be respectful. You're talking about the garments of the holy priesthood. Is that what you're talking about? I'm just saying if Elder Packer, I've heard Elder Packer tell us uh, in a conference back in the 90s, late 90s uh, in Ohio when I was there, that they were a protection for those kinds of things. And of course, that theology has changed. But um, and again, as you pointed out, they probably should have been underneath the clothes anyway, if that was the real reason to wear them. Yeah, with the garments. I mean, they didn't come out with their garments on top of their clothes. But you're <laughs> right. And somebody brought this up later. That all the things that I could have said that I should have said that I didn't say. Yeah. Was a, you know, what, are you guys not wearing your garments tonight? I think you're yeah. showing a lack of faith. What is it Darth Vader says? I find your lack of faith disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Well, my friend, uh, any other things to cover before we jump into the topic for the night? Well, I know we've got to go to the topic. I just wanted to mention what happened on the flight home. Oh, by the way, please, yes. Okay. So anyway, once again, I'm not in there at all. And I'm flying home. By the way, I'm in first class, Bill. This is the Ooh. first time in my life I have ever flown first Ooh. class. How did that Thank happen? You. Thank you, John DeLynn. Oh. Because he's very gracious. And uh, I kind of did it without asking. But I only did it on the flight home. Anyway, I'm sitting next to the, um, the window. And this nice lady... Uh, she's uh, petite, and we've all got masks on, right? Thank you, John DeLynn, for for paying for my first class. <laughs> should, should I have said that? Sorry about it. Wasn't that much more? It wasn't that oh, much more. Yeah, it was like what three hundred and ninety six dollars more. That was no, it. no, because I upgraded. <laughs> okay, I I upgraded at the last minute. Anyway, we won't talk about what I did at the hotel on his dime. So. The thing is this. So a nice lady, she's sitting there and, you know, I've actually got room to sit. I've got room for my feet. It's amazing. First class is the way to go. I'm finding out. You got a nice stewardess who comes and gives you something that looks, you know, edible. It was, in, it was a great time. So I'm sitting there and we're flying up to SeaTac, which is of course in Seattle, Seattle, Tacoma airport. And it was a huge storm. That was going on. There's flooding at the Skagit River. There's uh, all sorts of landslides that were going on because of the rain. And we are getting ready to come down to the airport. And at this point, the, cl the clouds have uh, opened, at least where we are, and the sun is shining. And we are getting 
buffeted by the wind. We've got a, like a gale crosswind on this 737. And we are coming down and we are bouncing around like this. Oh my gosh. And we get almost to the runway and the pilot goes, starts pulling up at a very, very steep rate as they will do when they're pulling up from an airport so they don't hit another plane. And this other, this lady, you know, she's obviously, well, she's maybe half as scared as I am, but um, I kind of reach over and I say, it's okay if I hold your hand. She goes, yeah. So I hold her hand and I tell her, I said, it's okay. It's okay. Because what's going on is the pilot just wants to make sure we have a safe landing. He didn't think we could do a safe landing. So he's pulling up at a, a steep angle. He's going to circle around. He's going to try it again. And the guys in the tower, they know everything that's going on. Everything's fine. Right. And she's going, Oh, thank you. Thank you. How do you know all this? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm just making the shit up as I go along. <laughs> and so she, so she starts laughing. And now I've got to, I want to engage her. Right. And uh, in conversation. And I looked at, and there's a Thrive hat she's got down below her seat. And I said, were, were you at Thrive? And she says, yes, I was a speaker. I said, really? I said, uh, she says, yeah, I'm Sarah Edmondson, which name actually meant nothing to me. I'm sorry. Because I wasn't in there. That's why right. I started off by saying I'm in the lobby the whole time. Right. And uh, Sarah Edmondson, and uh, I pull my mask off and I go, I'm Radio Free Mormon. And she goes, oh. and so we're talking about her. She's introducing herself, telling me about the book she wrote, The Vow, A Little Bit Culty, their podcast. They just had John DeLynn on, all these things. And we're talking about it. And I'm really, really engaging her in conversations, quite delightful as we pull around. And I'm looking down out of the window and man, the sound is below us the puget sound lots of water and you can just see this the white waves and the foam just against the water it was quite a spectacle and i'm going man it's windy down there so anyway we're coming back around she still, she thought leaving a cult was going to be difficult and now she's just getting more trauma i know sitting next to me <laughs> exactly and so we're go, we're coming down for another one and it's just as bumpy it's just as bumpy and i'm telling her it's okay it's okay because if we if the pilot doesn't think it's safe again he'll just pull up again and he'll keep coming around until we can land safely now once again i want credit for what i did not say because what i thought but did not say is either that he'll keep going around until we can land safely or until we run out of gas whichever comes first <laughs> so if oh. you're watching sarah yeah. I didn't say that. I was I was being thoughtful. And we finally come down. We land and we got the wheels down. I said, OK, wheels are down. We're good to go. And, and everybody starts applauding the pilot. You know, thank you. Thank you so much for for landing us safely. So that was the um, the experience I had with Sarah Edmondson. And I got her uh, her phone number. We're in contact. She's a wonderful person. And I listened to the podcast with John DeLynn. Yesterday and today in two parts. Fantastic. What a great podcast. He did really, really well on that podcast. So that was that story, that harrowing story. Oh, by the way, it was so strange because it was like I was really calm. You know, I was I thought I was going to pretend to be calm for her, but I was actually calm. I felt as calm as President Nelson did after the engine exploded on the Navajo airplane that he was flying. Yeah, I was going to ask you if your plane caught on fire. Did you you have to do a, a death spiral? Nothing like that, huh? It did. That did not happen. But give it a few years. <laughs> it won't take many if it's anything like Nelson's story. No, wait till I tell this a few years from now. It's going yeah. to be really hairy. <laughs> okay, well, that's it. Okay, Sarah Edmondson. I, I don't know if you mentioned the cult she was in, the Nexium cult, where they got the 
they got the the branded uh the initials of the leader of the cult on their like uh, below their belly kind of uh, above their leg and uh, really traumatic and she was one of the people who brought that cult to the ground and went to the new york times and broke the story and had that guy put in prison she said there's an i think it was hbo special or yes. a miniseries called the vow vow you got it and i haven't seen it but i certainly intend to it sounds fascinating and when she when she shared her story at Thrive, she knew her audience well. She connected so many dots between her cult and another high demand fundamentalist religion that I know of. And she did it so well that it was obvious that they shared a lot in common as far as the mechanisms that are inside of them. Uh, so it was really good. Another right. funny thing is the next morning on King Five News at six o'clock, they're showing video uh, from a phone that a passenger on the plane had made landing at SeaTac Airport to show how terribly bumpy it was. Yeah. And then it and then it pulls up and I'm looking at, and I'm going, oh, I know who that is. That's the lady who was across the aisle because I saw her yeah. holding up her phone and taking the pictures. And I thought, you know, I really hope that this video she's making doesn't go viral because it's the last thing that was seen by any passenger aboard that flight before it crashed and burned. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So it was your plane that's footage was shown on the on the news. Huh? That's yeah. pretty cool. Well, my friend, tonight we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about Bigfoot is Kane. This has been done recently. John Larson and, uh, and John DeLynn sat down, had a conversation, and this topic made its way for about 20 minutes of their episode. But uh, I was digging around a couple weeks ago and uh, found a few things that I didn't think had been talked about in Mormonism. Then I came across the Larson and DeLynn interview, and they hadn't done it either. either so I thought it would be kind of cool to go into this. And uh, essentially, the, the first thing that we've got, um, to just start this off, this Bigfoot story, the, the main thing it's always shared, no matter where you go, when this story is being talked about, it's David Patton. And of course, Patton was, I think, an apostle, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. He and was he one was, of the 12 apostles, and he was the apostle who was killed at the Battle of Crooked River in 1838. Yeah, and he was killed, killed young. Uh, had a lot of life left in him, but, uh, you know, went to the battle and lost his life. But before that, in about 1835, I think he's in Tennessee. And the story that gets told that he essentially meets uh, a, a, a tall, dark man. And uh, the story gets kind of I'm stammering a little bit because the story gets a little strange because we have David Patton's diary, which we'll get to in a little bit. But it says here, LDS Apostle David Patton was riding a mule in Tennessee I met with a very remarkable personage who had represented himself as being Cain. I suddenly noticed a very strong personage walking beside me for about two hours. He wore no clothing, but was covered with hair. His skin was very dark. I rebuked him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the virtue of the Holy Priesthood and commanded him to go hence. And he immediately departed out of my sight. That was the quote shared from one article. Another article shared the same story, but took out different words and put in different ellipses. And it said, as I was riding along the road on my mule, I suddenly noticed a very strange, uh, strange person walking beside me. His head was about even with my shoulders as I sat in my saddle. He wore no clothing, but was covered with hair. His skin was very dark. I asked him where he dwelt, and he replied that he had no home, that he was a wanderer in the earth and traveled to and fro. He said he was very miserable. He was a very miserable creature, and his mission was to destroy the souls of men. And the reason we get this story, if you, we've got David Patton's diary. Strangely enough, David Patton does not mention in his diary having uh, 
having had this happen, uh, there's no commentary about having met up with Kane, which I would think, wouldn't you, RFM, think that was a pretty serious thing to go home and write in your journal? Absolutely, I'd be putting it in there. But he didn't. And so the, the way we get this is uh, there's a book written by Lysurgis A. Wilson, and he is writing The Life of David W. Patton, The First Apostolic Martyr. And what he does is he reaches out to Abraham Smoot, who uh, I think is an apostle at the time too, correct? Mm -hmm. And Abraham Smoot then is being asked, I think, the way it comes off is Abraham Smoot is intentionally sending him this one story. So it's almost like Lysurgis had heard the story, uh, knew that Smoot had served with uh, David Patton, asked Smoot to, to write down the story and send it to him. So what we get is David Patton uh, – but it's not a firsthand account. It's Abraham Smoot retelling the story that Patton was at Smoot's home and is recounting the story to Smoot's family. And that's the way that we uh, get this story about uh, David Patton running into this tall, dark person and David Patton being told by this personage that he is Cain. Um Kind of a cool little story in Mormon history. You knew about this probably for all your time in Mormonism. I know I sure did. I did. And I just want to back up and say I'm not positive that he was an apostle, but he, certainly not at the time maybe, but he was definitely a church leader of some importance, Abraham Smoot. Yeah, maybe somebody can look it up on Wikipedia or something and, and share with us uh, uh, his actual callings. And again, we're looking for the time around 1835. But yeah, the deal is that, I mean, I read this shortly after I was baptized in 1978 before my mission, I'm reading The Miracle of Forgiveness because this is where most people know it from because Spencer Kimball included it in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. And it was probably at a time when he's talking about Satan and Cain and them trying to destroy the souls of men. So you you better be good. And otherwise, Bigfoot's going to come and get you. That was the impression I got. But actually, I was thrilled to read this because, like I say, I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest. That's where I grew up in the 70s, at least as a teen. And you don't, you're not up here very long before you know about Bigfoot um, because he's like the, the state mascot in some sense up here in Washington state. So I knew about him. It's an exciting thing. You know, is it true? Is it not? If it is true, then he's like the world's champion hide and seek player because it's like nobody can ever really find good evidence of him. But it's always a fun thing. And I just joined the, the LDS church. I know that there are apostles and prophets on the face of the earth today. I'm reading a book that's written by the current prophet at the time, Spencer Kimball. And here he's got a story about Bigfoot. It's obviously Bigfoot. So I'm excited because I realize that Bigfoot is true. Yeah, yeah. Um, Smoots, uh, Smoots says to Lysurgis at the end of the entry, says there was much conversation about the circumstances between Brother Patton and my family, which I don't recall. But the above is in substance his statement to us at the time. The date is to the best of my recollection, and I think it is correct, but it may, because he said spring of 1835, but then he, then he concludes, he says, but it may possibly have been in the spring of 1836, but I feel quite positive that the former date is right. It Again, it just seems strange. He doesn't include it in his diary, Patton that is, but Smoot heard the story firsthand from Patton and then shares it secondhand with Lysurgis, who includes it thirdhand in his written account. Right, because David Patton is actually writing, when he has this encounter with Bigfoot, he's actually writing to Abraham Smoot's house, correct? 
Yes. And in fact, uh, the part we didn't read, but is in the original account, is that uh, when he commands uh, Cain to uh, go in the name of Jesus Christ, Cain uh, suddenly leaves. And right then he recognizes that he is at Smoot's home. I know. And he gets to Abraham Smoot's house and he starts telling telling him about it. And Abraham says, well, were you followed? Yeah. He goes, no, I wasn't followed. Yeah, yeah. He says, yeah, you led Bigfoot to my house. Thanks, David. What do you think you're doing? And actually, Bigfoot may be a bit of um, the wrong term. Maybe it's closer to skunk ape. Because skunk. that, yeah, that's the name of the Bigfoot down south. Well, that's maybe more in Florida. But anyway, it has different names depending upon which region of the United States or even the world that you're in. How well so, did the smooth slept that night? I, I wouldn't sleep very well if, <laughs> if, if my friend had just oh. led Bigfoot to my front door. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So there's a couple other places uh, this comes up. And I just want to note first, if we go to Fair Mormon, uh, Fair Mormon dismisses this whole idea as folklore. And they pretty much like go like, look, guys, it's just a it's just a crazy story. Um, and so if you have if you have that, if you'll put uh, the fair uh, one up and I'll give you a second to do that. The, here's what Fair says while uh, while she's finding that uh, this account was published in a biography of Patton uh, written by Lysurgis Wilson in 1900. Wilson had a letter from Abraham Smoot giving his recollection of what Patton said in, in historical parlance. This is what is called a late third-hand account. Now, by the way, when late third-hand accounts work in favor of the church, they have no problem using those, do they? No, and this is one of those great examples where they want to argue against the accuracy of the account because they don't want it to be true which is interesting in and of itself and yet they have to keep that in one side of their brain because in the other side of their brain when things like this are favorable to the church even if it's a late hand account and even if it's third hand then they will promote it as being the gospel yeah so the rules are fluid the goalposts are moving and uh, there aren't any real uh, hard and fast rules that we're going to play by is there yeah, and you brought this up before that a lot of times apologists will use one argument or one set of argument for one issue, yeah. and then they will use the opposite argument for another issue as long as it benefits them. And the the important thing is never to say both of them in the same conversation. Yeah, and it does seem strange that they feel an emotional need to dismiss this story because it really doesn't have an effect on the church's truthfulness. And in fact, to some extent, as we'll get into later, disproving the story may actually do more damage to the church. Um, but whatever the, do you mean by that, Bill? Well, we'll get to that. My friend, you hold, you hold your knickers there in a bunch as we move through this. Um, the sort of things most historians would dismiss is what fair says. This kind of testimony is simply unreliable. Again, remember that third hand accounts that are late are unreliable in this instance. This kind of testimony is simply unreliable, tainted by the passage of time and the fog of memory. Huh. All right. Uh, note that in Wilson's account uh, above, Patton never identifies, this is what Fair says, Patton never identifies the mysterious figure as Cain. Um, so even if we were to grant the account was accurate, it doesn't inform us in any way about Cain the idea that Cain still walks the earth is simply folklore. In other words, Patton himself never in his own uh, material ever says that. And then even when uh, Smoot is uh, recollecting this thing to Lysurgis, uh, 
the idea is that he is he's seen a tall, dark figure with hair, but they're never really saying it's Bigfoot. He does say that it's Kane, but um, they're not really connecting the same dots that later LDS leaders do. And then Fair finishes with a little comment. Um, oh, no, I'll skip that. We'll use that later on. Uh, but we're going to see here, by the way, they're trying to say, look, uh, Patton doesn't really say anything. Smoot says something late. It's really all that we have. And, the, and that starts at about 1900, where Smoot is sharing this with Lysurgis. And But we're going to find out there's actually more to this story than that. And Fair doesn't seem to want to include the context that would help us better understand this. So we're going to go through a few other things. Uh, a 1919 manuscript published in 1921, E. Wesley Smith, president of the Hawaii Temple, uh, told then-apostle and future church president, uh, let me get, get rid of that, future is, church president Joseph Fielding Smith about an encounter. A 1919 manuscript cited by Matthew Bowman. By the way, Matthew Bowman is the scholar. Um, he did a he did a book on Mormonism maybe 10 years ago that was a pretty good hit. Um, I forget what the name of it was, but I've got several copies here in the back of the pawn shop. And Matthew did a, I think it's a dialogue article, isn't it? Uh, I think it's the Mormon History Association. Okay. He does a, a, a pretty lengthy article essentially touching all the aspects of this story. I think it's the best place to go uh, besides our podcast to, to kind of dive into some of this stuff. But in 1919, uh, Bowman recounts uh, how in that year, another Mormon missionary, E. Wesley Smith, was attacked by a huge uh, hairy creature the night before the dedication of a mission. He fought the beast off in the name of Christ and was told by his brother, uh, and we'll get to who that was, that the monster must have been Cain who condemned, who was condemned by God to live as an eternal vagabond as punishment for killing his brother Abel. Um, Wesley Smith said, a man came through the door. He was tall enough to have to stoop to enter. By the way, Cain is all over the place. Cain is traveling on ships. Cain is traveling across the country because every time there's a, an appearance of Cain, it's somewhere, it's some other state or some other place in the world. I know. This is in Hawaii. In the, is it the Lei Temple, which was yeah. right the night before it was dedicated, he makes an appearance. And I think this is the one you're talking about. Yeah. But you see, he doesn't need ships. Because Cain is the world's greatest swimmer because he had to tread water for about a year during Noah's flood time. Remember, there was that little thing that the earth was covered with water, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and it didn't recede for about a year. So he is an expert. He's got more gold medals than Mark Spitz. I thought, he was just, I thought he was just utilizing his timeshare in Hawaii. <laughs> okay. So uh, he's told by his brother, Wesley Smith is, that the monster must have been Cain, who was condemned by God to live as an eternal vagabond as punishment for killing his brother Abel. He says, a man came through the door. He was tall enough to have to stoop to enter. His eyes were very protruding and rather wild looking. His fingernails were thick and long. He wore no clothing. And then Wesley Smith said, I commanded the person in the name of Jesus Christ to depart on being commanded to leave. He backed out the door. One of the things we're not really going to connect the dots on very well tonight is that this time in Mormonism, when this story starts up into when this story kind of fades away, Mormonism is steeped in racism prior to the 1978 revelation, giving all people access, all men access to priesthood and all people access to saving ordinances and temple. And so it really becomes obvious when you read these dozens and dozens of stories, anytime somebody sees a 
imposing person of color, uh, it seems like people want to start to pull out the label of saying this is Kane and slash Bigfoot. And you see that throughout tons of these stories. I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, and of course they do. It's a natural thing for them to do because why was it that blacks could not hold the priesthood? Why was it that they were consigned to slavery because of the curse of? Cain. Bingo. Ta-da. Um, by the way, that brother was Joseph Fielding Smith. He was the brother who told Wesley Smith that it was Cain who visited him. Uh, he says, Cain, whose curse it is to roam the earth, seeking whom he may destroy Joseph Fielding then echoed John Young's themes almost verbatim, describing Cain as a representative of the spirit of the adversary. So uh, you mentioned Spencer W. Kimball earlier. We'll get to him in a second. Abraham Smoot, David W. Patton, Joseph Fielding Smith. So, so far we have four church leaders who are all on one level or another perpetuating the story, correct? Yes, Perfect. The next one, a 1920s experience with a racist mission president labeling a random, strange-looking person of color as Cain. In the 1920s, missionaries in Mexico encountered a large, dark, hairy creature who said he was Cain. Later in the 20th century, missionaries in Georgia were attacked by a, this is their words, huge black Negro who chased them away. They were told by their mission president it was Cain. They go to their mission president and said, look, there's this six-foot-five black man who was chasing us. And the mission president is so racist, his immediate assumption is to inform his missionaries that that was Cain. Uh, can I add to that and just say uh, racism certainly may play a part. But what I hear is that this story from David W. Patton has gained such currency in the church and is believed so widely that it is – the first place where people will go to in the LDS church, if they hear anything about someone big and dark or black skinned doing something that they consider to be negative or uh, threatening toward missionaries or representatives of the LDS church. So that's why it's interesting. And I know you're going to get to this. I apologize that this had such currency that everybody and their dog is seeing Cain and they are describing him and having experiences with Cain. By the way, it's always very nice of him to identify himself as Cain pretty much wherever he goes, maybe not in this last story, but otherwise, how would you know? But these experiences mirror to either a greater or lesser extent the story that was told by David Patton. Yeah, it is to me insane that any time a tall, intimidating black man is annoyed at church missionaries or church members that he has to risk being labeled as Cain. Like it really is this silliness of taking this, what I would call a crazy story and, uh, and then perpetuating it in ways that really could, could be, you know, if you knew all these, these accounts, they would be causing um, serious uh, trauma to people around them just because you assume because someone's tall, they've got a little bit of hair, maybe they got hair like Robin Williams, you know, and uh, by the way, my mom really dug men with lots of hair. And one of her favorites was Robin Williams. She loved like the hair on the knuckles and all that kind of stuff, man. She dug it. Just a little side note. Sorry. Just a little side note. Um, uh, but you could see that there's all these situations where you're, you're labeling people as this super uh, 
bad guy in our theology, this, this transgressor who's the first murderer, he's got this curse, he's responsible, as you pointed out, for people of color not being able to have priesthood or go to the temple. And, and, and be slaves. Yeah, and they feel this permission because of LDS theology that anytime they run into a person of color who's tall and intimidating to pull this story out. Um, the next one here is... By the, by the way, and I don't mean to get ahead of you, Bill, were you going to mention good. the Eliza Snow poem? Yeah, that's the next one. Okay. So this is the one I wanted to, to shine a light on. So when Fair Mormon comes in and goes, look, guys, this is all due to a secondhand account by Smoot, which turns into a thirdhand account in uh, Lesurgis's, uh write-up on Patton. What they're failing to tell you is that we actually have a much earlier account. They do mention it, but they don't tell you the year, and they don't share with you uh, the context of this. And so Eliza R. Snow in 1884, keep in mind, that's before the Lesurgis account in 1900, and that's before the 1919 account by Wesley Smith. She says in a uh, poem that she writes, this is her writing, she says, quote, we read that Abel, Adam's son, was slain by his aspiring jealous brother Cain. And Cain was cursed, and yet he wears his mark as seen by David Patton. He was dark when pointing to his face of glossy jet. Cain said, you see the curse is on me yet. And so um, Eliza R. Snow is absolutely connecting dots that it is David Patton and his recollection of a person he encounters who claims to be Cain and that that Cain has the curse on him yet. So if Fair Mormon's going to be honest and transparent, at the very least they need to do is change their website to recognize that it is the first account we have is Eliza R. Snow in 1884 that clearly shows that she understands this story. Right, and she uh, cites it to David Patton by name in her poem and identifies this figure, this character, as Cain. Cain. Yeah, and, and this is about 50 years after Patton's experience. Remember, this is 1884. His happened in 1835. Yes, and, and, then it, spe you and it speaks to how well this was known among the general membership. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this, Spencer W. Kimball. What book was it, RFM? It's one I, I don't remember the title of it. What was it again? The Miracle of Forgiveness. That was it. The Miracle of Forgiveness. That's a beautiful book, isn't it? Yes, yeah, oh. also known as The Miracle of Unforgiveness. <laughs> right? right? You're, it's almost uh, kind of like Wendy Nelson's The Not Even Once Club, right? Like yes. everything's bad and it all leads to you being gay. Um, it's it is it's pretty atrocious book to the point where I think the church has stopped recommending it and has kind of cast it off to the side. But remember, this was former apostle at the time and future church president, Spencer W. Kimball. And Bowman makes the mention, and I've seen it mentioned in other places, that there really wasn't a need to put this story in the book. It was kind of a little out of place, but that uh, uh, Elder Spencer W. Kimball thought it important for whatever reason. Uh, to include it in his book, pages 127 and 128, if anybody wanted to check that out. Uh, the Miracle of Forgiveness was published in 1969, so we're still before the 78 revelation. And I think 78 would be this uh, moment in time where the church begins to try to get rid of these stories and get rid of this data and start to back away from it. 
But of course, Kimball's book is used for at least a couple of decades more, maybe maybe even three decades more after that. I will bet you there are listeners who know about bishops handing it out to young people even today. Ooh, that would yeah, because because the church does this thing where it never it, it gets rid of something, but it really never tells its current leadership to get rid of it. Right. Yeah. Other unless it's a handbook, then you got to destroy that thing. <laughs> yes. Um, Elder Kimball's book became a staple of Mormon reading, the book that many bishops gave to members struggling with sin and many mission presidents assigned their missionaries to read. As you point out, it was where you and I, I think, pick up the story and we knew that Bigfoot was real and he existed. It's authoritative or it was authoritative to me at the time. I had gone to the Deseret Bookstore and I picked up what was then the missionary library. And it was a set of 10 paperback books that every missionary was supposed to read. I didn't read them all. I don't know if you were supposed to read, but they were uh, permitted to be read. So I read through a number of these before I went on my mission because I wanted to do my best to be prepared to preach the gospel. And one of those was the miracle of forgiveness. You read that as an 18, 19 year old. It's by the fellow who is now the president of the church. This is authoritative. This really happened. Yeah. And when you say authoritative, I want to I want to emphasize that. It's not authoritative because it's at Deseret Book, per se. It's authoritative because the church was recommending that its stake presidents and its bishops use that book when helping people to repent. I was part of disciplinary councils when I served in a bishopric where somebody was being disfellowshipped or was giving, um, what was the softer one? A what? formal probation. Oh, right. right. So, so people would be given formal probation or they would be disfellowshipped. And one of the things that our bishopric would tell people was that they needed, as part of their repentance process, they needed to read the miracle of forgiveness. And there were documents in my bishop's office from higher up where the church had in years past, because we kept all the old ones, in years past had recommended that the miracle of forgiveness be an instrumental tool in helping people to repent. Today, the church would go, that book is unhealthy. We don't want you using it anymore. They don't really tell the leaders that, but but we all kind of gather that that book is is slowly going away. Um, but when you say authoritative, it's important to, rec to, to uh, recognize that it is the church that made it authoritative, not your personal opinion of seeing it in Deseret Book. No, and let me be uh, make this clear again. This is in the missionary library of 10 books that the church is promoting missionaries read along with the three-volume Doctrines of Salvation, along with Discourses of Brigham Young, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, Gospel James Principles. Talmadge, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ and Articles of Faith are in that as well. Mm -hmm. So this is alongside all of those. And so my impression was that everything in it is going to be true as spoken by God through his prophets. Yep. So I got two more little things to to note, and then I want to turn time over to you. You've got a couple of things that are some connections to this Bigfoot story. Um, Bowman makes note. I just want to share one quote out of his article, which I think is crucial to us understanding this issue. Um, he says, "In the past generation plus, there has been there has um I'm sorry there has a has been a move away from a dark cane in the emergence." of film footage of a creature called Bigfoot or Sasquatch who replaced the huge black man as Kane in many LDS circles. It's reasonable to assume that the end of policy-driven LDS priesthood and membership prejudice against blacks have soured the previous concept of Kane among many Mormons. And what he's saying is that when you go into the earlier time period 
where this story was being shared, it wasn't connect. There was no connection to Bigfoot. It was just tall people of color with hair who were intimidating and nobody uses the word. It's Sasquatch. It's Bigfoot. It's a cre You know, there's one more time I think where it's mentioned being a creature, but that's it. All the other counts could be understood as just being a person of color and being a tall, intimidating um, a person as such. And he notes that as the church gets rid of the race ban and as the footage of Bigfoot that was famous surfaced. The Patterson film. Yep. And as that came about, slowly there's this uh, shift in the folklore going from being just a tall person of color who's intimidating, dark with, with hair to being actual Sasquatch and Bigfoot. And it also marks the point because the race ban had ended that Mormonism has to slowly make a decision to kind of get away from that story because it's going to be deeply connected to the racism that the church held. Right. And just to give a little bit of chronology there for you, the Patterson film was made Northern California, I believe it was 1969. Mm. Looking it up here, it's also called, called the Patterson-Gimlin film now. I think it got changed because he was also present when this was shot. Uh, 67, 1967, I think is when it is, according to Google. And remember, Kimball's book came out in 69. Yes. Yeah. He kind of locked it in for a couple more decades by doing that. Good job, Spencer. <laughs> All right. So the last thing I want to note here is Fair Mormon's conclusion. Um, if you don't mind putting that Fair Mormon article back up, if you haven't already, I think you actually did. Perfect. Um, the conclusion here, they say, why is it that some LDS people give these stories doctrinal credence? Does that not manifest a measure of gullibility? Is it only because Spencer W. Kimball quoted it? They give Cain some kind of quasi-translated status based on the story alone, without question, as if he is some kind of hideous undead creature akin to a vampire or zombie that can appear and attack people physically. Why is no skepticism applied to the story? Well, I'll tell you why, because LDS leaders didn't apply any skepticism to the story. Right? I, I have not read this before, Bill, but as you're reading it, I'm thinking, okay, so are you going to apply the same kind of reasoning to other miraculous encounters that were alleged by Joseph Smith and others that still remain part of the truth claims? You mean like the, the sweet, church? like the Sweetwater Crossing or uh, Brigham Young's Transfiguration or, or Moroni appearing or, or angels First Vision? Yeah, there you go. If you apply the same reasoning, it gets pretty dangerous. But yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted I you. No, no, you're good. I'm glad you pointed that out. Why is no skepticism applied to the story and to the new folklore that has arisen around it? Wasn't Cain a son of perdition, a liar from the beginning? Would someone believe claims from Mark Hoffman? Well, Wait a minute. Who, who believed claims from Mark? This is fair Mormon. Who believed claims from Mark Hoffman? Spencer Campbell. <laughs> and about six or seven other guys. And by the way, are they just throwing Mark Hoffman in there for grins? Because Mark Hoffman never produced a document that talked about Kane or Bigfoot or anything like this. Did he? No, but he did produce documents that were fraudulent that LDS leaders did believe. They are really uh, pulling out all the stops to get us to question stories uh, from early church history that have been endorsed and passed along by prophets and apostles. Yeah. Then why should they believe possible words from the mouth of Cain as far as can be discerned from the foot? Wait a second. Wait a second. They just switched there. Did you see him switch yeah. there? They're First off, why are Cain telling you he's Cain? 
Yeah. Why would you believe this is true? This is a ridiculous story. You're gullible to believe it. Besides, why would you believe anything this guy Kane said? Right. So if it came to the actual mouth of Kane, then it would be the actual mouth of Kane. Yeah. So the first part they're talking about, it never happened. The second part they're implying, okay, well, it happened, but why would you believe anything he said? Yeah, that's. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that. As far as can be discerned from the folklore account, Elder Patton did not test Kane by shaking his hand to see if he was truly corporal. By the way, neither did Joseph Smith when the angel with the drawn sword. That's a good point. Right. But Joseph you, Smith didn't test the angel either. That is a good point. If an angel with a drawn sword or Bigfoot shows up, the last thing that's going to be on my mind is trying to shake hands with him. <laughs> Maybe they just do this, you know, do the fist bump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that in a moment, my friend. <laughs> it, this paragraph almost feels like a mole on our side wrote it, doesn't it? I know who wrote this, Brian Hales. <clears throat> I don't know. It's either got to be him or, you know, John Lynch or somebody. Yeah. Needs, I don't know. It, it could stand a little bit more editing. It, it could. There's a lot of things in here I don't think you'd want to say as an apologist because I think you're hurting the church's uh, standing. And by the way, let me just say uh, as an attorney that when you're giving a closing argument, as they are doing here in a conclusion, it's probably not the best idea to be arguing two mutually contradictory conclusions in the same paragraph. That's like saying my guy was never there when the crime was committed. But if he was, he was acting in self-defense. Did anybody test the handshake of John the Baptist or Peter, James and John? Because, right, John should have a physical hand. And Peter and James should deny shaking it. Right? I know that 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 section of the Doctrine and Covenants with you know the pull my finger test of the spirit <laughs> to see if it's a really uh, an angel or Satan or spirit, it sort of hangs there by itself. And I'm not aware. Maybe people can correct me, but I'm not aware of any story where it was actually employed to figure it out when all these different beings appear. How about Moroni? How about Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in the Sacred Grove? I don't think so. But then Joseph Smith didn't know how to apply it yet. <laughs> he didn't even know the rule. How can he be held accountable to a rule he doesn't even know? It's like Heavenly Father and Jesus show up in the Sacred Gro Grove and introduce themselves. And Joseph says, hi, I'm Joseph Smith. <laughs> uh, Elder Patton did not test Cain by shaking his hand to see if he was truly corporal. What justification would there be to believe the words of the son of perdition? Let me tell you, if it really is the son of perdition and he tells you he's the son of perdition, I'm just going to tell you to go ahead and trust him. <laughs> I know. Yeah. If somebody tells you that they're Cain, you can believe them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So um, what justification would there be to believe the words of son of perdition? It doesn't make any sense that any good thinking person would give those cl claims credence. I'm going to tell you. Any good thinking person is going to find a lot of shit wrong in that last conclusion. That's what I was going to say. It doesn't make sense that any good thinking person would write these words that I'm writing right now. In fact, the moment I became a good thinking person, I stopped trusting this website altogether. <laughs> well, they so, didn't do a favor by erasing you from it then. Yeah. This, right. This negates much. This is my words here. This negates much of the context and facts it also fails to deal with the ineptitude of LDS leaders themselves, who are the primary reason this folklore got perpetuated, is because multiple prophets, seers, and revelators struggled to discern the truth 
and they are the ones who are responsible uh, for the false teaching. So if the if Fair Mormon wants us to challenge the story, we're going to have to also challenge the discernment of our prophets, seers, and revelators. See, that is the underlying problem that at least the first part of this paragraph and the conclusion has, where they're saying how gullible you've got to believe to believe a dumbass story <laughs> like this. They're talking to Spencer Kimball. They're talking to Joseph Fielding Smith. They're talking to David Patton. I mean, they're talking to all these leaders, apostles, and even prophets of the LDS church and saying, you guys, how, how gullible can you be? If you and I were in charge of this article and we were told we had to propose a faithful position, I would have just done one sentence. I would have just said, uh, we here at Fair Mormon believe that Cain is in fact Bigfoot, period, and move on. Yeah. Like it doesn't cost you anything to actually take the other side. You actually unraveled Mormonism's truth claims and made the story more absurd by making the argument you just did. Right, because it's really unlikely. I think that's a pretty safe uh, thing to say because it's really unlikely that Bigfoot is actually ever going to be discovered and we're going to be able to ask him who the hell he is. <laughs> if somebody asks you if you are a god, you say yes. yes. <laughs> that, didn't you say that at one time? <laughs> well, yeah, it's Ghostbusters. Okay, yes, that's right. You were quoting Ghostbusters, I think, last week or the week before. All right, that's everything I've got, but you've got some more connections here to Bigfoot. Yes, and someone actually had already made a comment about this that you put up on the screen. And it's very interesting because I'm reading the story about David Patton. I thought this sounds kind of similar to another story involving Martin Harris, where he sees an animal <laughs> whom he, what? He sees an animal out in the woods yeah. where animals tend to reside. And yeah. yet he it's a deer. And he thinks that this deer is Jesus. In fact, he identifies the deer as Jesus. And they have a conversation as they walk along. So... <laughs> Uh, why, why are you laughing at that? This is sacred well, stuff. Because, this, this, is why, this is why they is. don't share their sacred stories. Oh here's, my gosh. Your, here's your savior and messiah. <laughs> what are you do, where did those come from? Listen, dear, dear Jesus, dear, dear Jesus, would you please come into my heart? <laughs> well, the dear Jesus on the right looks like a Catholic. Yeah, this, I think, yeah, the left one has that halo too, so... He might be a Catholic dear Jesus, too. Where did those come from? Can you tell me? I just me? looked up dear Jesus, hoping I would find something like this, and I did. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, here's the thing. There was a person, because I was doing research, by the way, and I wanted to say that we were kind of independently researching this whole Cain and Bigfoot thing, and we both independently came to the, the Bowman article, because it's very, very important. Oh, my gosh. There's the first vision. <laughs> What are you doing? If if Martin Harris is to be trusted, if Martin Harris is to be trusted, we have to trust him. We can't pick and choose which stories of Martin Harris we accept if he is a, a uh, solid witness. How would Martin Harris do in a courtroom on the stand with you? Can you hang on a second? Because I want to talk about the first vision picture here. <laughs> All I can say is it's a good thing this happened in the spring of 1820 because at least it wasn't deer season. <laughs> Okay, because oh, that could have been dangerous for the for the father and the son to be showing up looking like that in deer season in the middle of the woods. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Joseph Smith should be wearing an orange vest. There were there were two hunters up on top of the hill, and they were looking down at some deer and gonna gonna you know aiming down and trying to shoot them. And the oh, the deer gosh. looked at each other. The deer looked at each other and said, "Why don't they thin their own damn herd?" <laughs> I think this is this is bordering on the sacrilegious at this point. However, however. 
I wanted to uh, tell you about a story that I found, and it's written by a person uh, who goes by the name of Mason Proxy, if that is your real name. But that's the name that's given here in this article from August 27, 2017. And it's about this sighting by Martin Harris of the deer who is Jesus. And I just want to read this because I thought it was brilliantly written. Have you ever talked with Jesus in the woods in the shape of a deer? No, me neither. That would be super weird. But Martin <laughs> Harris did. Before you get all skeptical and sinful, Bill, let me explain why this is totally legit. This isn't the first time that Jesus has been seen in the form of a deer. And it isn't really that weird. I mean, it isn't Old Testament weird or anything, like a bush that's on fire but doesn't burn, or a person turning into a pillar of salt. Now, that's some weird shit. Sorry, that's in the article. Anyway, there have been at least two other accounts of Jesus appearing as a deer. The St. Eustace in the second century, that may be one of the pictures you have, and St. Hubert in the eighth century, that's the other picture you have. That makes Martin's 1835 experience a third witness. And you know what they say about witnesses, don't you? In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. If at least two or three people share the same story, it's definitely real. That's what we call the law of witnesses. And it totally works. Anything that's corroborated by two or more people is completely true. Besides, some of the really weird stuff, like UFO sightings, alien abductions, and heavenly visions that don't fit the Mormon worldview, those are just plain nuts. Using the law of witnesses, Jesus has shown the world that he really likes deer. And he sometimes likes to, <laughs> he sometimes likes to pretend he's one. Hey, if you had unlimited God power, you know that you'd be doing this kind of stuff too. <laughs> True <laughs> that. <laughs> it's perfectly normal to pretend you're an animal as a grown man, even if you're God. <laughs> then the next part is called Crazy Martin Harris Stories You Missed in Church. Speaking of witnesses, you probably know that Martin Harris was one of the witnesses of the gold plates, but you probably haven't heard of some of the more interesting things about Martin. Because for some reason, those things don't come up during the church lessons. Here's his experience seeing Jesus in the form of a deer. By the way, this is a third-hand account too, so we know what fair will do with this. Yeah. Here it goes. This is from a letter uh, by John A. Clark, August 31st, 1840. Whoa. Well, at least it's not late, is it? That's much earlier. Here's the quote. He, this is Martin Harris, he told a gentleman in Palmyra after one of his excursions to Pennsylvania, while the translation of the Book of Mormon was going on, that on the way, he met the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked along by the side of him in the shape of a deer for two or three miles, talking with him as familiarly as one man talks with another. Is he on mush is he on magic mushrooms in that forest walking down the path? I mean, it seems like that's a hallucination of all hallucinations. I know, and that's funny, and I hear you, and I hear that about other things, but I think that in this and it may be okay, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see the talking deer. <laughs> it's like, you know, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. Well, deer can talk too. So but I think that people at this time period, they didn't need any extra stimulants or, hallucin or hallucinogens, right? 
to see crazy stuff like this and yeah. to see things that would otherwise be normal and to interpret them or understand them to be characters from the Bible, divine beings who actually have the power of speech. And then they start relating these stories as if they really happened. By the way, I'm making a presumption there that it did not. Forgive me. Going back to the article, which just quoted that letter about this experience with Martin Harris. It says, pretty cool, right? Well, there's more. Martin was a very superstitious guy and was a lot more interesting than church lesson manuals had us believe. His experience with Dear Jesus is just one of many fascinating Martin Harris anecdotes. For more accounts and details, check out Mormon Think's site, that's Mormon Think, and this excellent blog post from Zelf on the Shelf. There's links there in the article. He once mistook a sputtering candle as a sign of the devil while reading scriptures. Don't, candles, don't candles sometimes sputter? They, they will. They'll, I think it's, is it called gutter? They'll, whatever it's called, yes. They'll sputter or sometimes the wind will hit them and the, the flame will do crazy things. Sometimes the flame will even go out if the wind is strong enough. So, yes, uh, here's the next one. I'm going to put numbers next to these to make it more clear as I'm reading it. So, one, he once mistook a sputtering candle as a sign of the devil while reading scriptures because no human being would make a candle sputter like that. Number two, he freaked out in the night thinking that a large creature was on his chest. Three, he prophesied that all other religions would crumble or convert to Mormonism within four years. He consented to have his hand cut off if proven wrong. That's why a short time after that, he was known as one-handed Martin for the rest of his life. I just added that part. That's it. One, two, three, four, four. He changed religions a lot, 13 times in total, both before and after Mormonism. And the last one they have is he saw the devil. So he didn't just see Jesus. He saw the devil as a sleek haired fellow with four feet and the head of a jackass. Let's see, four feet in the head of a jackass. It sounds like a donkey to me. So apparently he sees a deer, in, he sees Jesus in a deer and the devil in a jackass. Now remember, this is the guy who went into the woods with Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and he was the one who couldn't get himself to see what the others were seeing. He's the one who had to be taken off separate because he couldn't see what those guys were seeing and had to be roused up into having an experience separate and afterward. And what this guy, this th what I'm saying is how gullible he is. And somehow he couldn't have the vision makes you wonder about the credibility of the other two. So what you're suggesting is that maybe Oliver Cowdery and Martin David Whitmer were actually more gullible than Martin Harris. Maybe. Now, I know that there is some data that might point otherwise, but again, Martin Harris seems to have a life filled with seeing some crazy stuff. He sounds like Kirk Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, right? What? Oh, yeah. I'm an ordinary guy, but I've just experienced some extraordinary things. Martin Harris has experienced a lot of extraordinary things. And it's, I want to read the last paragraph of this article, but there's this idea that um, you sort of gain credibility within this culture. By the experiences you have seeing supernatural beings and reporting them and telling the stories about them, it's almost like there's a, um, I don't know, a something measuring contest going on between them. And it's like you gain credibility by the number of incredible stories that you tell. Yeah, but don't tell one too many. Uh, why not? Because at some point, 
you become such a storyteller that unless you have witnesses who can vouch for these stories and having experienced them themselves, you have too many and it becomes almost absurd. I, I grew up with a kid on my street and every time I said what I was doing in my life, he had a story that was bigger, better, more exciting. Um, and after a while, I just said to myself, like, I think he's lying. I think he's making this stuff up. And at that point, I, I, I saw him through that lens and he continued to do that. And it became obvious that's what he was doing. And I never trusted him on anything again. Yeah. And I sort of get the idea when this article puts all these different stories about Martin Harris together, that maybe he was doing the same kind of thing. And maybe that's the reason that the church doesn't want to talk about these stories in their manuals. Yeah, all the things that Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris experienced, we really inside the church only cover about 5% of that, don't we? Right, and the 95% we don't cover is the really interesting stuff. Oh, and that's that leads into the last paragraph. So the next time you hear about Martin Harris, don't let the dominant narrative fool you. He was a very interesting character. And the next time you're out deer hunting and you see a majestic buck staring into your soul, Maybe it's Jesus. You wouldn't shoot Jesus in the face, would you? <laughs> and that's how it concludes. I thought this was such a great piece of satire. I just wanted to read it for the audience. Yeah. And um, you had another connection, which I thought was really interesting. You, co you connected Bigfoot, Kane, uh, to the uh, Heartland theory as well, although not directly. Didn't you? I don't think so. Were you talking with someone else about tonight's show? No, no, no. I think you were mentioning that Rodney Meldrum's brother is an expert on Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rodney Meldrum. I'm sorry. I didn't get the connection there. Rodney Meldrum's uh, brother. And what is his name? He works at, the, I think it's the University of Idaho, and he's one of the world recognized authorities on yeah. Bigfoot and has the biggest collection of plaster casts of alleged Bigfoot footprints. Right. And he and he looks at him and he says, you know, this is exactly the way it would be. Uh, and this is accurate to uh, anatomy. And uh, that's actually his expertise. So he looks at these and he says, these are real. And he tries to do it in a scientific way. I do not have the background to judge whether uh, he's correct or whether he's not correct. All I'm reporting is that he does that. and He's quite famous for it among yeah. Bigfoot circles. Rodney Meldrum, of course, is the kind of proponent face advocate for the Heartland theory. And uh, it is his brother, which I think you're looking up now. I'm trying to buy you a moment or two. Yeah, I'll um, put Bigfoot Meldrum in there. It's Jeffrey. Jeffrey Meldrum. So Rodney yeah, Idaho State Jeffrey. University. I got that right. Yeah, it, it does see. I don't know. Does Jeffrey believe in Bigfoot or is he just collecting? Jeffrey? Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. He is he a true believer and he believes that he has the evidence. And he goes out with people. It's on TV. You can find different things, I'm sure, on YouTube, uh, different um uh, documentaries of them going out and trying to find Bigfoot and uh, even using drones to try and go out and find things to my, to my knowledge. And I'm not up to date on his discoveries, <laughs> but to my knowledge, he hasn't actually found one yet. No, isn't it weird? We live in a verifiable age. We live where everybody's holding a, a cell phone. Um, we have uh, the ability to capture footage in such detail 4K. I think I, I, I saw that 8K is now a thing. Um, and in the midst of being in this technological age, it seems like in 2021, there is less video footage captured of these kinds of strange things than there was 20 years ago. 
Um, I think that probably Bigfoot aficionados would beg to differ with you on that. And there are a number of videos that uh, populate YouTube. Yeah, they're always far away. Yeah, they're always far away or they just get somebody in the shadows or they we never get them up close and personal, do we? Can I tell you that there are at least two that come to my mind that are kind of convincing to me? That's not one of them, by the way, but that are (laughs) kind of and it's not the Patterson film either. But there are a couple that are really, really interesting. So all I'm going to say is I have an open mind about the existence of Bigfoot. I certainly lean toward the side of skepticism, but I do not know that they don't exist. There we go. There's the Patterson film. Yeah. 1967 up in Northern California. There's Kane walking to and fro on the earth. Actually, if you look closely, you'll see that that's Mrs. Kane. I will not look that closely. Thank you. <laughs> you don't actually have to look that closely because Mrs. Kane is kind of stacked. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got it. Uh, any other thoughts here on Kane before we move on to uh, some phone calls? No, that's it. Perfect. If uh, you want to throw the banner up for the telephone numbers and uh, I'm going to pull up uh, my Google voice account and uh, we can take a few phone calls. Um. Okay, so we're going to talk about the phone number here. I know you're looking at some things. Oh, yeah, we've let's, got- yeah, let's mention this. So um, be- so let's give people a moment to call in 435-200-3478 or 435-200-FIST. So one of the things that we are working on that our person who is in the shadows here, they're, they're behind the scenes, helping us to put these images and things up Um they're also helping us resolve our phone call problem. So we are in the middle of getting a, a site that will um, – Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, hold for just one moment. I'll turn the time over here in just one second. Um, we uh, have an opportunity to create a phone bank where people can call in, tell us what they want to say. Our, our person behind the scenes will answer the phone. Um, Get your name, check it to see that what you're saying has to do with the topic of the night and be able to put you on hold. And we can have a phone bank with multiple calls on hold and you and I will be fed information on what that person wants to say. But even more importantly, we're working on a resolution of the problem where the listener can't hear you. The caller can't hear you, RFM. And that's such a big deal so that we can carry on a real conversation with our our live callers. Yeah, Bill, that's not a bug. That's a feature. Okay. Yeah. So, so we're hoping to resolve that. And uh, yeah, it's a, that's a feature. <laughs> the fact that the callers can't hear me. Can't hear you. Right. All right. It's right. not a bug. It's one a feature. Second, caller. Oh, You're good. Just one second. So um, we're in the midst of trying to fix that. What we will have to do if we take that route is we will have to create a new phone number and we are open to whether we keep the last four digits to spell the word fist or whether we make the numbers, the seven numbers following the area code spell something else like Mormons or RFM, Bill, or tithing or any other thing you guys can come up with. So in the comments, if you wouldn't mind, if you have any uh, any smart suggestions, uh, if you would like to put your suggestions in the comments, uh, RFM and I will be checking those over the next couple of days and we will try to sort through them and see if we can't come up with what seems to be most favored uh, by you, the listeners and the viewers, because rather than choose, we talked about it today, but rather than choose what we like, we'd like to give you guys a chance to have an impact on the show. 
and to help us select the number um, for us. And so help us pick our numbers based on what word it spells. Caller, your name? Uh, let's go with Chad this time. Perfect, Chad. Chad, you are on the air. Uh, what can I do for you? You're on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. Well, uh, I grew up with this whole Bigfoot uh, cane uh, Sasquatch thing growing up. I'm class of 99, but my father's a young earth creationist. Uh, he believes in, uh, I don't know which Skelzen is, but uh, Skelzen's uh, 7,000 years. Of, yeah, it's uh, either Royal or Cleon, right? It's Cleon. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read it myself, but um, uh, like this whole him uh, global flood thing, surviving that for example like well i was taught that uh the global flood the earth has to be baptized by immersion that's why the global flood happened to wipe out all wickedness so i mean cain survives that somehow and um he's uh you know it didn't wipe out all wickedness if you really think about it it just doesn't add up but i believe this was stuff was all totally true and you know, like I'm 13 years old, coming back from Sea Cadets, uh, talking about this with some kid, you know, and he must have just thought that I was totally uh, nuts. <laughs> it, it's very interesting folklore, but uh, but when you really think about it, all this stuff's untenable. But uh, I mean, this it, it's a fantastic worldview. Yeah. And uh, when, you know, when you leave it and you really think about it, it just doesn't stack up. No, lots of layers don't stack up. You're right, my friend. And uh, the flood story on multiple levels is one of those. So thank you for pointing us to that. Appreciate the call. All right. Thank you. Have a great night. RFM, when I think about the global flood, you know, we were taught the world had gotten so wicked that God had no choice but to erase all of us and start over from scratch. And uh, when I sit and think about that. Uh, no caller, we turn down the your your sound, please. And start over from scratch. Sure. Let me and when I start to think about that, okay. Perfect. You know what you say is so good. I like hearing it a second time, Bill. Yeah, yeah. Be give me one give me one second, caller, and I'll introduce you. I've got you one here. quick question. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold, hold on, hold on, one moment, please. So, uh, RFM, in the when it comes to the flood, um, we we had this idea that everybody was wicked, but the reality of that, when you think about it. A earth populated with all these people, men, women, children, it becomes apparent to a rational mind that there would have absolutely been innocent babies, innocent people in the midst of even severe wickedness to the extent that if we accept a global flood, we have to accept a heavenly father who really is murdering innocent people simply to uh, uh, it's better that one man should perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief, right? And that becomes untenable when I decide that God's morality is somehow more unhealthy than my own. You know, that's a good point and a serious point that you make there. But I think I just came up with the explanation for how it was that Cain survived the flood, Bill. And I know you're talking on the phone, so I'll just go with my punchline. Jacques Cousteau was apparently not the actual inventor of the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. No, it was Kane. Yes. <laughs> he was the first scuba diver. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Roger, um, you're a popular caller on the program. Uh, what do you have for us, my friend? You're on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. Just one quick question. Please. Uh, since 1978, uh, can Bigfoot hold a priesthood now? 
<laughs> Kenny, thank you, Roger. <laughs> thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Can Cain hold the priesthood? Well, I think the language of official declaration two says it is open to all worthy men. So I guess the question then becomes whether he is a man. Yeah, and, and he would have been originally and he was a man. And on top of that, the gospel topic essays say that the church disavows all racist theories of the past. That would certainly include, if we're going to say all, it would include Cain. I think he's just got to get worthy because apparently during the flood, he's already been baptized. Yeah, I, I bet over the course of a few thousand years, he could repent. Absolutely. Caller, your name? Uh, Josh. Josh, you... Uh, good evening, guys. Yeah, you're on Mormonism Alive. Uh, so... I don't know. Um, I when I was a history student a long time ago in college, uh, my professor said something that uh, <laughs> Jane Austen's novels um, were the first um, were examples of the first time that novelists would um, like use the psychology of her of his or her characters to propel the plot. So I was wondering if um, uh, if like you know those early brethren or church members who told stories or tall yarns about Bigfoot, uh, you know, encountering Bigfoot, I wondered if they were maybe embellishing their stories to like, you know, kind of make themselves seem more spiritual and therefore more important. You know, David Hatton was, uh, you know, eventually an apostle, right? He was like, a um, uh, the first martyr of the church or, or whatnot. Um, and I don't want to like, um, tell my, I, I don't want to like, you know, uh, like remember or re-envision re my own history or stuff. But when I was, uh, like a believing member, um, I once had a dream, um, that it might've been right before I got my, uh, patriarchal blessing. Cause I was, I had gone in access in church. Uh, so I got my patriarchal blessing as a 21 year old. And around that time, as I was like preparing spiritually, I had a, a dream of, uh, encountering Jesus, uh, like, uh, like kind of like on a cloud, you know, like, a, a stereotypical cloud. Anyways, he was wearing a red robe and I, like, he, you know, um, I, you know, I knelt before him and, uh, you know, RSM don't get any dirty ideas, but I, I, you know, I, I did the whole, like examine the nails, the, the nail prints on his, uh, like body and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I, I'm, I'm left to believe uh wonder if um you know sometimes we we do we tell these stories if if only to like make if only to convince just ourselves that we you know that we're on the right path or that you know we're special kind of like an ego versus it and i was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that yeah love it love it I, I think there's a lot of truth to that there were lots of things i did as a believer to persuade myself to hang on to belief Yes, absolutely. And I think it hits on uh, a number of things that these kind of stories are good for. They do give a person automatic credibility uh, because people within the group are predisposed to believe them because they support the beliefs of the group at the same time as they're supporting the um, the person and the, um, what am I trying to say? The Not the strength of the person, but putting them on a higher level as being able to have these experiences as well. So that's really true. But I'm concerned that people out there think I have a dirty mind. You're the one with the dirty mind, Bill. In what way? 
Well, I'm the one who always has to be correcting you when it comes to like dropping the F-bombs on the show. Yeah, I do swear a little bit. Swearing for me has become um, part of my part of my repertoire. I kind of like it. Yeah, I'm an example of the old phrase, you can take Mormon, excuse me, you can take, you can take the boy out of Mormonism, but you can't take Mormonism out of the boy. That's yeah, me. It sure as hell doesn't wash off easy, does it? <laughs> well, we can take one more. I'll wait for one more call to come in, and we'll take one more call, and then we'll call it a night. Um, I thought this was a fun. I'm, I'm looking at the comments. It seems like a lot of people really like the episode as far as it being entertaining. Um, and I do think that you know Fair Mormon ought to, it's in all seriousness, ought to revisit their write up there because I think they open up a can of worms in about five different places. Um, so anyway, uh, if anybody else has a comment, four three five two hundred fist, you can certainly get on the air here for before we close up the show and, and love your, to hear your thoughts on Bigfoot and your comment about Fair Mormon. Yeah, uh, that's just one of the many reasons that Fair Mormon is one of the top three resources that lead people out of the church gospel topic essays ces letter air mormon yep. and elder oaks <laughs> okay okay i was thinking ces letter but maybe elder oaks is coming up on the outside okay uh caller you're going to be the final call of the night your name david david glad to have you on the air what do you think about bigfoot my friend oh i think the idea of bigfoot is crazy but uh, very common uh, superstition. I think superstition is something that is very common amongst the members of the church. And I guess my question, the question I would pose, and then I'll jump off the air, is how do we help members with uh, the ability to think critically? How do we get them to the point where we can help them think critically and get past some of this skepticism, this old magical world view, some of these old beliefs that are just out there? And I'll take my answer off the air. Perfect. Thank you, my friend. Have a great night. All right. So um, I'll share my thoughts, Arfim, and then I'd love to hear yours. First off, I think the church is doing it. it. We now live in an internet age. We live in an age of verifiable history. We live in an age of easy access to information. We live in an age where the critical voices can band together and point a finger at the anomalies, at the contradictions. And so you're seeing Mormonism slowly start to pull all of its uniqueness out and becoming just a, a, a fluffy religion with a couple of extra books. And I mentioned to you on a couple of occasions, I think on this show as well as in person, that what you know, we have prophets, seers, and revelators. And yet, over the course of the last, say, 50 years, Mormonism knows less and less and less about how the world works or about what is true. And all of these things that Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith used to know everything about, we have little by little shed all of that to the point where. The, it must be that the point of having prophets, seers, and revelators is not to add truth upon truth, but is to remove truth upon truth to the point where we just about know nothing, to the point where Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard admit that, you know, there's things we don't know. Those aren't the things we're going to speak on. Um, there's a lot we don't know. There's plenty of quotes in the last five or 10 years where leaders say there's a lot we don't know. They no longer know how ceilings work or how other kinds of things like that work. Um, so that's my first thing. And then the second thing 
is that um, you have to overwhelm people with the information, which is what we do here. We take an issue and we just take it down to its you know bare roots and then expose every contradiction that's in an issue so that people are overwhelmed with the data, that they can see we're being honest and transparent about all of this stuff, and that as we, uh, as we deconstruct all of it, uh, they are overwhelmed by such a uh, significant amount of information, which is what the CES letter does. It's what listening to hundreds of hours of John DeLynn and Mormon stories did for people when he was back doing all those interviews with Bushman and Givens and all those scholars. Um, it's what you did on, on Radio Free Mormon for you know 200 episodes is helping people see these historical issues in their completeness, which at some point becomes deeply overwhelming. Absolutely. By the way, I want to mention that if you see me laughing or smiling while people are talking and calling in, it's usually not because I'm laughing at you. It's because Bill is using that opportunity to put up comments on the screen. Actually, like the one that's our, up there now. It's actually our shadow host who's putting those up. Oh, okay. And sometimes I glance down and I look at them and I start laughing because yeah. they're so clever. Um, I would say in response to that question, that it's something a person has to learn for themselves. Yeah. And it's something that can only be done probably by listening to other people that they respect or think uh, they might want to follow or emulate who do use reason and logic. And it reminded me of this famous quote by Jonathan Swift, where he said, you cannot reason a person out of a position he did not reason himself into in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, that was the end of our phone calls. Do you have any other thoughts before we conclude? Yes, please. Next week, everybody, we have a very special guest I'm happy to announce who has agreed to come on the show. And his name is Denver Snuffer. Hmm. Yes, I finally managed to get Denver Snuffer to agree to come on the show after about two years of trying and pleading and begging and sending him roses. And uh, he's finally said, okay, he will. That's going to be next Wednesday. It's the night before Thanksgiving. So we are going to have a show the night before Thanksgiving. Hopefully we you'll be able thank thee, oh God, for a prophet. Thankfulness and prophets, Thanksgiving and Denver Snuffer. Oh, gosh. Thank you for uh, putting a fine point on that for me. I, I apologize. Very good. And a nice rendition, too, by the way. So he will be here. And we'll be able to talk to him about what he's got cooking, what he's got going on. And believe me, there's a ton of stuff he's doing. This is going to be more about trying to find out who he is as a person, as opposed to really, and his thoughts behind what he does, as opposed to uh, a lot of nuts and bolts. It's going to be a different kind of interview with him. And I'm really looking forward to it. I find him to be, he's a lawyer, by the way, as well as I am, and I find him to be very personable and approachable and very easy to talk to. He's very, very funny, has a delightful sense of humor, and I'm looking forward to having him on the show, and I hope everybody will be able to join us. It looks like Bill Real is just dying to say something. So here you go, Bill. Can I ask what Jesus looks like? Um, you can ask, but uh, I've talked with him about that. He has agreed to respond to the question and actually – his response is quite intelligent and articulate. We've been going back and forth by emails. And uh, hopefully you will be respectful, young Bill Real. Don't make me come over there. <laughs> Don't make me come over to that side of the screen. Um, when have I ever been disrespectful to a guest ever? I don't know. I guess it depends on your definition of uh, disrespectful. I'm not sure. I'm having trouble thinking of a time, Bill. You usually are very respectful. Never. 
Okay. Well, never is a big word. So I know you'll continue that, that unimpeached record next week when we are pleased to have Denver Snuffer on the show. Yeah. So make sure you tune in next week for Mormonism Live. Same bat time. Same, same bat, bat channel. channel.